there has been a lot of ink spilt on the implausibility of a man being swallowed by a fish and surviving the ordeal. However, the fact is, while it is unusual, it certainly isn't impossible. Dr. Harry Reimer, president of the Research Science Bureau of Los Angeles, writes of a man who spent two days in a gigantic Rikondon shark. Dr. Reimer interviewed the man in 1926, two years after the fact. He said the man was still hairless and had yellow-brown patches all over his entire body as the result of the shark's gastric juices having worked upon his skin in an attempt to digest him. A man who is swallowed by a great fish doesn't come out looking like he did when he went in. The word of the Lord came a second time to a man who was just this kind of a hot mess. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Jonah chapter 3 begins with these wonderful words. It's incredible, but true. God is the God of the second chance. Biblical history repeatedly records that God is faithful, even when his people are not. Certainly, Jonah is a case in point. To do a quick recap, Pastor Mike preached on Jonah chapter 1, when God first spoke to Jonah about Nineveh. Jonah was in his hometown of Gath Heifer, when he was told to get up and go to Nineveh. He was to tell its inhabitants that God fully intended to destroy them for their wicked, violent, and selfish way of life. Well, he certainly did get up and go. He got up and went in the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa and secured passage on a boat heading west. Nineveh, however, was northeast of gath Heifer. But Jonah's itinerary was set to take him as westerly as one could go, practically to the end of the then-known world, to Tarshish, at the southern tip of Spain. He wanted to be as far away from Nineveh as he could manage, and he almost made it. Almost, but not quite. Jonah couldn't escape from God and the call placed upon his life. He was going to Nineveh whether he wanted to or not. To help him get his priorities straight, God stirred up a wild storm on the sea with waves so ferocious, the crew was forced to jettison the cargo and pray to their gods for rescue. But still the storm didn't let up. The ship would have gone down with great loss of life had Jonah not fessed up to his sin of disobedience and allowed himself to be thrown overboard. Chapter 2 recounts Jonah's near-drowning or full-out drowning, depending on which Bible commentator you read. Jonah ends up spending three days and three nights in the belly of a gargantuan fish. The second chapter ends with the great fish vomiting Jonah up on the shore of a beach. God spoke to Jonah a second time telling him again to deliver a message of judgment to Nineveh. With his skin bleached and damaged by fish digestive enzymes and his body devoid of hair, Jonah would have been quite a sight to see and a curious spectacle to the Assyrians whose primary god was Dagon, the god of the sea. The scuttlebutt that no doubt preceded him would certainly give him a receptive audience. He had been rescued from the wrath of the sea god and lived to tell the story. That made him uniquely qualified to deliver the damning message. 
and wise enough to know that resistance was futile. Jonah was a walking, talking, cautionary tale, a living, breathing advertisement that Adonai of Israel, the Lord of Lords, was the God above all other gods and could not be trifled with or ignored. Adonai meant serious business and his plan for Nineveh was much worse than Jonah's comparative slap on the wrist, harsh though it was. The message was to the point and apparently inevitable. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah shared God's prophetic word, but he did not share God's heart for the city of Nineveh. Jonah hated Nineveh and the Assyrian people, but God called them great. The word great was an appropriate word to describe the capital city of Assyria, but it wasn't great in a good way. The Assyrians were boastful and violent. They were gifted in state-of-the-art, cruel and unrelenting warfare. They expanded their territory by descending upon other nations, killing, raping, and pillaging, often leaving nothing in their wake worth salvaging. They would take the kings of conquered nations um, and carry them off to Nineveh while their homelands were forced to pay exorbitant tributes to ensure their continued well-being. Ninevites were the classroom bullies of the ancient world. They didn't play well with others and were never satisfied unless they were causing havoc. Assyria's army was massive and well-organized. Their weapons were made of iron, and iron was valued because it was strong, and Nineveh had access to lots of it. Iron kept its edge and didn't need to be continuously sharpened, so Assyrian armies had a fairly easy time conquering other nations whose weapons were constructed of lighter and weaker bronze. Assyria was merciless and universally despised, but when God called them great, he wasn't talking about their power, their numbers, or even their wickedness. The original language intimates that the inhabitants of Nineveh were great to God. He saw them as significant, and his heart was set on their redemption. He would do whatever it took to win them, and Jonah would be instrumental in the process. Picture this. A solitary, weakened, hairless man infiltrates the city that houses the dreaded Assyrian war machine. He travels slowly and methodically through the streets of their capital city, crying at the top of his lungs, in 40 days, you will all be destroyed. Now, what would be the odds of his survival, do you think? Nil to non-existent, I'd think. But did they kill him? Surprisingly, that wasn't what happened. Instead, from the moment Jonah opened his mouth, Everyone, barring none, every man, woman, and child, all 120,000 of them, believed God and cried out to him for forgiveness. Following the religious practices of the Near East, the population en masse went into deep mourning. They stopped eating, dressed in burlap, and even went as far as to dress their herds and flocks in burlap. Now, as someone who owns a domestic cat that refuses to even wear a collar, I can't imagine how they managed to do that. To add insult to injury, they forced the poor animals to fast from food and water. Now, farm animals kept from their feed for a long time cry and wail something terrific. So the city was filled with noise and crying and commotion. And for what? 
Was it because they were fearful? That might have been part of it, but the Bible says they cried out because they were sorry. They were sorry for their brutality. Sorry they had raped, killed, pillaged, and plundered their way through life. Sorry they offended God. They recognized their guilt and it broke their hearts. They threw themselves on God's mercy with not one bit of assurance he would do anything but what he said he would do, destroy them. It was the greatest recorded revival in the history of humanity. The entire city turned to God. An entire population turned from their wickedness. And they didn't just give lip service to Adonai. They didn't merely fast and pray and dress in burlap as a spectacular show of repentance with nothing to back it up. As the Bible tells us in Jonah 3.10, they put a stop to their evil ways. The change was real. Here was a group who knew nothing about God, but that he was perfectly justified in destroying them. They did not know, as the prophet Joel said, that Adonai was merciful and compassionate and slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. They did not realize that it was in his very nature to relent and not punish if they would believe his message and put their faith in him. But they turned to him anyway. They had faith. The crux of this incredible chapter is found in verse 5. The people believed God's message. God recognized their faith, saw their changed hearts, and relented from their destruction that he, that he threatened. It is interesting that the Hebrew word used for believed here is the same word used in Genesis 15:6, where we're told that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. The quality of their belief was the same as Abraham's, and God's response was to declare them righteous in right and saving relationship to him. They were as righteous to God as Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jews. Isn't that amazing? Interestingly enough, though, the conversion of the Ninevites was not recorded in the history of Assyria. And for that reason, many critics interpret this to mean that the book of Jonah is parabolic and not historically accurate. However, what we find is that the period attributed to the visit of Jonah is strangely silent when it comes to Assyrian history. Arthur B. Fowler in the New International Bible Dictionary offers this explanation, quote, the Assyrians, instead of numbering their years, named them from certain rulers, and lists of these eponyms have been found, but with a gap of 51 years, around the beginning of the 8th century, due no doubt to some great calamity and or weakness of her kings. It was in this space of time that Jonah was sent of the Lord to warn the people of Nineveh." End quote. The presence of one godly generation, a kinder, gentler Nineveh, was not deemed worthy to be immortalized in Assyria's recorded history. But they were great to God and are part of his eternal kingdom. That would be a legacy worth choosing. Adonai, the Lord of Lords, is the God of second chances. He gave Nineveh a second chance 
Just as the word of God tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26, he took their hearts of stone and transformed them into hearts of flesh. God also gave disobedient, unreliable Jonah a second chance, but some people's hearts are harder than others. We reach the end of chapter three and Jonah is still a work in progress, but God is not finished with him yet. And praise God, he never gives up on his kids. Jonah was the very picture of a disobedient child. He thumbed his nose at God and set off to do what he wanted to do, not what God wanted him to do. Revelations 3.19 puts it this way, those whom God loves, he corrects and disciplines. Jonah's correction took the shape of a great fish, but finally Jonah was exactly where he needed to be, and an entire generation of Ninevites came to God in repentance and received everlasting life. Have you experienced God's correction? I know I have many times. I've also had the benefit of his discipline as he lovingly molds me, shapes me, and takes off my many rough edges to make me like Jesus. I hope and pray that my latest issues of health will be a means by which that image is refined. I have a long way to go. I'm learning in the words of Proverbs to not despise God's discipline because I know it will be for my good. After all, discipline is what makes an athlete great. God's discipline will make me stronger and able to finish the race well. So when I see my short hair and my spectacular scar, I consider them a well-heeled spiritual sports injury. Philippians 1.6 gives me a lot of comfort. It says, God, who began a good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished in the day of Christ Jesus. Sometimes I wonder why and how God doesn't give up on me, but he hasn't. And I'm so grateful because I can be a real first-class jerk. Unforgiving, self-righteous, stubborn, complaining, you name it. But as with Jonah and as with the Ninevites, God graciously sticks with me. So without hesitation, I want to tell you to come to him and let him begin or continue to do his work in your life. John 6:37 says that those who come to Christ will never be rejected. He tells us in Jeremiah 29:11 that his plans for us are good and not evil. They're to give us a future and a hope. In this COVID-19 situation, when so much is uncertain, when so much is just one big question mark, come to God or keep coming to him and know that you will be held close to his heart and that all things will work together for your good. Hey Jericho family, you are often in my thoughts and often in my prayers. Until we meet again, know without a doubt that you are loved by me and more importantly, by God. Amen and amen.